0: This is the Branches podcast. We try to keep it simple in this family of faith. Love God and love people. Let's not make it harder than Jesus intended. If you'd like to know more about our community of faith, you can visit us at branchesoc.com. We don't need to slow down. Something about the bad news draws us in and so it's like the old stat. I remember when I was taking driver's ed, like 15 years old, when they show the thing saying something like 96% of people say they're above average drivers. When you think, when you think about that stat, you're like, well, wait a minute. Half of you were wrong. Right? Otherwise, I don't know what the word average means. But... So I'm not off the hook in the idea of, do do I really know what good news looks like? I think we get so inundated with bad news that the idea of even knowing how to spot good news might be a muscle that's really atrophied because we're so inundated with negativity and we've been so inundated with negativity recently. And so if you Google the effects of good news, and there's been reams and reams and reams of studies of what the impact of good news is, it's overwhelmingly positive. In no matter which way you look at it, the sharers of good news and the receivers of good news, their lives are meaningfully impacted positively by good news. But somehow we don't crave that. We're not seeking that out. In fact, researchers are showing that online or even back in the days of print newspapers, the old if it bleeds, it leads" is that you're at 60 to 70% higher click-through rates on negativity versus positivity. So the reason why nobody's giving you good news is nobody cares. Nobody cares about it. Nobody clicks through it. Nobody's actually pursuing it. Nobody's seeking it out. It's not something that we're craving, but the bad news somehow is, which is strange. This was the quote from the last study on the good news, saying, We're not alone in history. Humanity has always gravitated towards negativity, but craved receiving and sharing good news. Those who did both, meaning sharing and receiving good news, increased in happiness and life satisfaction. Not only that, but those who received the good news also reported better moods. In other words, sharing the good news with others not only makes you feel better, but also improves the well-being of those around you. So what does good news look like? I'm not sure. And if the gospel, when we hear that term, that's used over a hundred times throughout scriptures. Is translated, one of the translators, but most consistently translated as good news. If the gospel is good news, and someone asks you, what does that look like, when the king of the world, the true king, shows up in humanity and says, I proclaim good news? We hear it every Christmas when the angel comes and proclaims the good news. It shows up on the scene and says, This is like the here's the awana trivia for the Bible. It's like, what does the angel come and say? I bring you good news about To whom? Yeah. And something specific we're going to look at, which we often overlook. So, when my search for good news of what the gospel really looks like, and I wanted to look at Jesus's red letter sayings, I wanted to go to the very beginning of his ministry. I'm in Luke chapter 4. And Luke is an awesome book. It's written by Luke, the physician, a close friend of Paul, who walked with Paul throughout his ministry. There's a a pairing of Luke and Acts, which are books together. Luke wrote those with a a form of symmetry, and their, their beginnings or their intro gives us a sense of what Luke was attempting to do. Now, I can imagine Luke being particularly, like, meticulous. He's a doctor, after all. He walked closely with Paul. He was trying to convey a very particular message of what Jesus was all about. About things that have been fulfilled. That's a phrase that he uses in the Act. I'm showing you all things to show, basically, Luke's idea is, can I give you a gospel that in its totality, because he mentions there are lots of accounts of Jesus, but the one that Luke is bringing to the table is to show you the things that have been fulfilled from past. Basically saying the entirety of human history, if we look back at this kind of this circle of time, begins and ends in Jesus and all things fulfilled in him. He is the beginning, the end, the center of it all, and everything's revolving around him. And so he starts in Luke. You get the gospel account of Jesus. You get the gospel account of what he's been doing, but but camps out on him starting his ministry. He's younger than me, Jesus at the time. Not by a lot, but you know, he's younger than me. Um, and he's out in the desert. He's tempted for 40 days. We know those stories about him going out in the desert, quoting scripture back to the devil, and then kind of launching into ministry. Amazing that... He waited until his 30s or so to get into this, but he did. I'm not sure why, but the Lord was preparing him. He was learning. It's wild to think that Jesus was learning, but he was. Think of the man Christ actually obtaining knowledge. He did not know everything. He actually, in his humanity, was learning. Yet in his deity, he was connected to the Father so much so that all knowledge was encompassed in him. I, I don't pretend to get that, but it's true. And so, he begins his ministry by going home. He goes back to hometown. He travels from the desert to Galilee, to Nazareth, hometown, and what does he do? It's the first thing, I don't know, it's the first thing he does. What's the first thing Luke says he does? He goes to church. He goes to synagogue. He finds his way to synagogue, and I want to paint the picture of where we are, so it's, it, it's Galilee, but it's also Roman captivity, and there are thousands and thousands and thousands of Israelites who have been working through each generation and their trials and troubles remembering the stories of grandfather's past about being freed from Egypt and Syria and the way God has come through, showed up on the scene in really wild ways. I mean, wild ways that God showed up in the history of Israel, redeeming them physically, mostly. It's mostly this physical oppression and physical redemption that they're seeing in true removing the captors from them, setting people free physically, actual slavery being set free, bondage being released, and all of this foreshadowing of what will come spiritually for the people of Israel. But all these people of church, much like here, it's hometown. This is Jesus' crew. Jesus is known there. It's very clear that where he was, people knew him. This is the kid from Nazareth. This is the guy that we know about. This is, this is, he's on the home court now. And I don't know if Luke is being cheeky when he's writing this, but he talks about Jesus' Being handed a scroll and asked to stand up. I don't know I don't know why it was his turn or why he was selected. It doesn't really matter, but it would be interesting to know. And whomever is in charge of the service goes over to Jesus and hands him the scroll. He says, here you go. We also don't know if Jesus chose it or if it was chosen for him. I like to think that it was chosen for him because it's awesome if it was. If it was chosen for him, it's awesome it shows how wonderfully complex God is in showing how things to come are, are going to be really, really, it's like a little Easter egg when you find, oh, why, he, why did he get get Isaiah 61? And so what happens is he's handed a scroll and he stands up and he's about to give his first recorded public speech or a sermon. And this is the style of the day in a synagogue. He would stand and read scripture. This was not uncommon. This is the way that they would teach. So he stands up, and he's given the scroll of Isaiah, and he goes to chapter 61, and he reads. So I want to start with the Luke account, and then I'm going to show you the Isaiah account. Because though we're in the Red Letter series about what Jesus said, what he's doing is directly quoting. But he's choosing how to quote it. So Eva, you can get us to the Luke 4 passage. indicate that I need a Bible with two bookmarks for this very reason. Okay. And really, the whole account starts in verse 14. That's the story of him traveling to Galilee. We'll pick up where he stands and he's ready to read. Put yourself there in the synagogue. But instead of it being Jesus, just to put our mindset there, I want you to think of Keaton. Keaton Rose. Okay? Now, I don't mean to make Keaton out to be a Jesus, so don't go... It's not going to be crazy, but... This is a hometown kid. This is a kid that most everybody here knows. And so it's Keaton's turn. And they hand him a scroll. And he stands up. And Luke does something very clever by not telling us what Jesus says first. It just goes right into what he says. So this is what Jesus says in verse 18. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down.
1: Everybody's eyes were on him,
0: what Luke says. Why? So says they were fastened on him. And he began by saying to them, and this is the thing that often is missed in this passage, What Luke says, after he quotes Isaiah 61, as he comes back, he goes, oh, oh, by the way, this is Luke's oh, by the way, oh, by the way, how he began this speech is by saying, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your reading. So we have to flip it. What Luke is saying is Jesus was handed the scroll, stood up to read, and started by saying, today, what I'm about to read is fulfilled. In me. Whoa. I can picture if it were similarly and Keaton stood up and said, I'm about to read something, but what I'm about to read is talking about me and it's fulfilled in me. You don't get the home court advantage, right? Home turf. Luke goes on after to talk about the people that are in the church. What did they say? That's Joseph son. is this a guy from Nazareth? Wait, I know this kid. I haven't seen him in a while. What's he talking about? He definitely doesn't get home court advantage of this. And he references it later. Jesus goes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Prophets in his own town are never listened to. It might be the hardest thing to, to disciple others that are close to you. It might be the hardest thing even as a dad to disciple your own children. I told this story before, we took our kids out skiing a lot when we were very very young and they started at like two and a half or three. At that age, the boots practically go to their knees and the skis feel like doors that they're standing on. And we had those things in the backpacks that were like horse and buggy reins. So I could ski behind them and i hold on to them like this. And if they got out of line, I could just kind of put them up. <laughs> like if it started, going, it started going sideways, you could kind of steer them back. And if they started mouthing off, you could just kind of <laughs> you get them right down into the snow. Uh, and they're so li- they're so close to the ground, that, you know, it doesn't hurt. But <laughs> by the time CPS is fine with it. Um, by the time they were old enough to go into ski school, you try a couple times to teach your kids to ski, but and our kids were great. They weren't whiners. I don't want to play them out to be whiners, but the common thing that happens when teaching kids to ski is like, dad, I'm cold. Daddy wants some hot chocolate, I'm ready to go in, all that stuff. When they're your kids, there's a tendency to not receive the message from me, even though I'm just, I'm just trying to teach them how to ski. But you put a 25-year-old Australian ski instructor <laughs> in front of them on the slopes, and they will go all day. And they will go, they will do whatever they want. They will party all day long on the slopes. They're never cold. They don't want any hot chocolate. They're not tired. And, hot, and I, I am not able to compete with some blonde 25-year-old Australian who's showing them how to ski. The home court advantage is not an asset in that case in showing them what to do. And so Jesus starts his ministry at home, at home turf. And he reads Isaiah 61. So let's pick up on the significance of this. It's the very first thing he's preaching on. It's right what he does after he comes out of the desert, has his encounter with the devil and with the Lord, and he's sustained. And the first thing he wants to do when talking about this is my ministry, this is what I'm all about, this is what I'm about to do, this is where I'm going, and this is giving kind of a nod back to all that was said about who I would be. I'm going to pick up on this gospel that Jesus is preaching, his words here. When he says, the Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to who? The poor. Preach good news to the poor. I think there's something deeply convicting when I read through a lot of the gospel accounts or the epistles or I read through what it is to be a Christian. There's several times I read through that and go, I might not be a Christian. I don't say that to be I say that to be, I don't know, have gravity to it, but to go, gosh. The way Jesus' ministry moved forward from this point forward was so laser like focused on the marginalized, on the poor, on the sick, on those who had no access to the goods in life, to women. He was so focused on being the antithesis of the economy that society set up, of what is best, who is best, and who is honored. I don't think we should look past the fact that one of the first things he does is go to Isaiah to talk about good news to the poor. So, to understand this fully and more deeply, we need to know Isaiah 61 so that we get an idea of what is he talking about. So I want to read it for you. And Isaiah, Isaiah is a beautifully complex book it's the prophecy talking about Jesus, but really the terms it's using is the anointed one and servant. It's the kind of idea that what Isaiah is prophesying is that there is one to come who is a servant and an anointed one. And the way he serves is going to be to bring this kind of restoration and renewal to those whom are not receiving that now. At the time it would have been slaves and it would have been Egyptians that were Israelites in Egypt or it would have been it would have been those who were oppressed. Those who needed good news really needed good news. So, we've set the stage. We know what Jesus has done. I want you to just close your eyes and listen to this prophecy of Isaiah as I read through it. It's 11 verses. You don't need to put it up even. I know we have it. I just want to read it over you because I think there's power enough in just hearing it. But know that The theme of Isaiah, whom he's talking about, is this anointed servant. And you'll hear a lot of the similarities between what Jesus just said. So this is Isaiah 61. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me, because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, and release from darkness for the prisoners. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. To comfort all who mourn, provide for those who grieve in Zion. To bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes. The oil of gladness instead of mourning and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They, as we get into this, I want you to take note of now who he's talking about. As those who've received this restoration and this renewal, there's a lot of they passages. What they become. Who do these people become when the anointed servant has restored them? They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. They will rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated. They will renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. Aliens will shepherd your flocks, foreigners will work your fields and vineyards. You will be called priests of the Lord. You will be named ministers of God. You will feed on the wealth of nations, and their riches you will boast. Instead of shame, my people will receive a double portion. Instead of disgrace, they will rejoice in their inheritance. So they will inherit a double portion in their land, and everlasting joy will be theirs. You may have noticed that Jesus didn't read all 11 verses, he stopped. He stopped mid-sentence. Weird place to stop. He stopped at a comma. He stopped in Isaiah's passage when he's he's reading through the, the first few verses. He ends with, but proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Comma. and He doesn't move on. I wonder why. My guess would be, And admittedly, I'm not a biblical scholar, so I have no formal training in this. But my guess would be, because whom Isaiah is talking about, and when Jesus says, I am this, that this passage is talking about, is speaking of him coming in the flesh as he stood there in that synagogue. And the rest of Isaiah is speaking what will happen when he comes back again. He will return in a different form and fulfill things that have not yet fulfilled. So that comma... That little space, maybe the most important little comma that we can recognize, encapsulates the entirety of human history from that point forward. We are living in that comma. We are in that little gap in that scripture passage. Where Jesus has come, fulfilled that which Isaiah 61 says in the first half, and at that comma where it stops, and everything else that is to come, will be a version of his return. But we can't make the mistake of thinking that when Jesus comes onto the scene and his renewal comes, Christianity gets reduced too often to this uh, kind of like a get-out-of-hell-free card. Or that, like, I become a Christian because it, it gets me somewhere, like gets me into heaven. And what Jesus is constantly talking about is the kingdom is here. And now, it's near. He's going out through his whole ministry saying the kingdom is near. It's now. He's not bringing you an easy pass, or he's not bringing you some access card into something. He's saying his kingdom is coming near now. That this begins now. Your relationship with eternity, when you're connecting yourself to the ministry of Jesus, begins now. It starts now. His kingdom is coming near to us now. And so... When we say good news to whom, and we think of Isaiah 61, and the arc of Jesus' ministry, we get a clearer picture, the context that this servant, who's anointed, is coming, and the thrust of his ministry is to minister to poor and sick, to ashamed, in Isaiah 61 replacing their shame with a crown with beauty for ashes for people that the world looks at and says they're not worthwhile or worth much to the very people that the church today disregards because they're not influential or pretty or popular because they don't Get us anything. And I just say, God forbid we were ever a church that uses the world's economy of valuing each other the way that the rest of the world does. And the hard part is, is that Jesus' ministry, what he does is he sets up these communities. And these communities are doing what he did in Jesus' name, learning to live and share resources to provide for the sick, to minister to the poor, to actually heal, to provide physical healing, and attempt to live in Jesus' name and continue to do the things that he started. And somewhere along the line, it got messy. It got real messy in the church. And the mission of Jesus became very much confessional. I confess to a particular set of truths. And then I behave a certain way, and now I belong. Is what happened in the church over time. It became a confessional thing. Versus Jesus walking around and saying, Jorge, come follow me. You belong. You belong. Learn from me. That's a disciple. That's different than confession, right? Confessional is just saying, this is what I ascend to rationally. I confess to this. Which is different than being a disciple. Jesus' talk about growing the church is almost never confessional. Of saying, just, just say these things in your heart. Think these things. What he's constantly doing is saying, come with me and learn. What's the difference between someone confessing something versus being a disciple of Jesus? A disciple, an apprentice, doesn't go to the master or those whom he's being discipled by. And just consistently day after day saying, are you thinking the right things? In your heart, are you believing the right things? That's important. But what the disciples saying, yeah, okay, that's a great first step. But our whole relationship is contingent on you following me and doing what I do. It's about you following me and learning the things that I've done. And so when Jesus is saying, I'm setting these communities up, I'm going to show you the way of a new economy that's flipped on its head. Where we give royalty and the dignity and the image of God to those that the world has oppressed. He's not asking you to simply confess that that's good. Well done, Jesus, I'm with you. He's saying, come with me and do it. Do these things. And so as I read this and I think of what is Jesus' ministry marked by? It's by a lot of this. Almost exclusively this. This is it. This is Jesus' ministry. And we can get caught up, as churches, and I'm not vilifying a systematic theology or right thinking, because that's the most important first step, but we can get caught up in all of our little tribalisms of dividing ourselves out into the very, very nuanced detail of how it is like John preached on that we have to navigate through the scriptures to find our way to Jesus and if we happen to be walking arm in arm with somebody navigating the scriptures the same way and we both come to Jesus well, we can be friends now now that I can now I can call you brother or sister and what Jesus is saying is just start walking with me doing these things devote yourself to the apostles teaching as Luke says in Acts The churches, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, they broke bread, they shared their resources, and they worshiped together and prayed. That was their church. And so, the people in Jesus' sanctuary or synagogue, when they were looking for good news and it showed up, was it what they thought it was? I don't think so. Obviously not just a kid from Nazareth who's grown up, this guy that I've seen around town He's talking about elevating the poor giving the prime seat to the homeless guy talking about giving women a voice, talking about giving somebody hope versus shame talking about meeting felt needs, talking about sharing resources would we know it when the king of the world comes onto the scene and starts doing these things, would we recognize it? That it's Jesus? That it's these things happening? Just like we gravitate towards bad news, somehow also ministries expect themselves to self justify their ministry by showing you how awesome all these big things is that we can do. And churches can do big things. And none of them are bad, not necessarily. But I don't think the things that Jesus was talking about would get any headlines. I don't think people would care. I don't think Jesus cared that people would care either. He didn't seem to care that it's not influential. Didn't gain him anything. That it's not popular. None of that was something that Jesus really cared about. So I I don't want this to become, again, an overly simplified version of here's the church and so what should we be doing? My notes of like, if good news looks like these things that were radically different and unpopular and uninfluential and difficult and uncomfortable and awkward and on and on and on, hard things, all these things of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. What's our part in that? And it can't be just reduced to, well, we should be doing this. It can. I have to start leaning more heavily on the promise and this beautiful symmetry in Isaiah when he brings in Genesis 2, talking about planting these new trees of righteousness, that those, you and I, those who are recipients of this kind of restoration, this renewal that Jesus brings, where the kingdom comes near and that you now participate in that kingdom now. He uses this garden imagery of being planted, trees of righteousness, rebuilding, much like the Genesis 2 account of this desert wasteland becomes this beautiful Eden. Isaiah is intentional about using this garden imagery of planting something and have it become something wonderful. And that the they passages that I said take note of, they will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of His splendor. They will rebuild ancient ruins and restore places long devastated. They will renew the ruined cities. You will be called priests of the Lord. You will be named ministers of God. You will feed on the wealth of nations. All these promises of what we will become as recipients of this good news. Like that very first quote I showed you from the study of good news, what was the effect of good news? The people who shared it, their lives were benefited. The people who received it, their lives were benefited. It's not just a spiritual thing, somehow it's even happening in just regular old news, but if it's good news, it's good. And bad news is overwhelmingly bad. So, when the Lord stops, when Jesus stops in Luke 4, 18, Proclaiming the year of the Lord's favor, what he's referencing is what would have been a very known time that would happen seasonally within the Israelites—the year of jubilee—which is where, and it seems radical because it is that all debts are forgiven. If you're an indentured servitude and you're working off a debt and are having to kind of form of slave-like labor, you are free. It's forgiven. Anyone who is captive to somebody is set free. It like is a reset that would happen in Israel on the day of Jubilee. Total reset. And Jesus is coming and saying, this is me, that this is fulfilled, and I'm coming declaring the year of the Lord's favor, the year of Jubilee. I'm coming to show you that all things are getting reset, and I'm setting up a new economy, a new value system. I leave you with just these questions. If Jesus intended to create these communities that are garden planting of sorts, planting these seeds of his righteousness that grow into something wonderful, he's planting new gardens. Where are these gardens most needed in St. Clemente? Where is this renewal most needed? And in my last couple minutes, I, I want to try to even bounce this off because I was asking this question going, I, I'm new to the town. The mission of moved down here a few months ago. I honestly don't know. You tell me. Jesus is saying, don't just confess what is true, but come follow me as I plant these new garments. It won't be popular. It won't gain you influence. It won't be something the onlooking world would say is influential. It won't gain you fame. But somehow it's Jesus saying, those who are the planters of these gardens, those who receive this renewal and provide this renewal, you are promised to them. You are promised much. It isn't just sacrifice, but the they passages in Isaiah 61 talking about all of the blessings that we receive as those who bring the good news, who share the good news. We are promised so much. So, where is renewal in this garden most needed? This week, I want you to think on that. We're going to meet as a staff on Wednesday, and I'm going to text it out again, and we'll see. But I'm curious what this congregation, in following Jesus as a disciple, if we have our finger to the pulse, the areas of the world that Jesus would be looking at. Where would, what, would, what would crane Jesus' neck on the freeway, Why not the accident? Where would he be looking saying, I see you. Whom would he be looking at and saying, I see you? I don't know. Ashamed, I'm ashamed of you. I don't know. I wish I did. That was my deep conviction as I read through this going, Lord, I confess. I don't know. I mean, I think that I do. But feeling the weight of Jesus saying, come follow me. It is good. But I don't know. So I need your help. We need your help. So I'll text it out again this week. Think on it. And as I pray, Kate, okay, can come on up. As we worship together, as we bring into this last few passages, I want to tell a quick story around... Um, Familiarity. When Jesus was so familiar in the synagogue and the hometown boy, where it's just Jesus, he was, um, nobody was in amazement or a wonderment around him because he was so familiar. Familiarity is the enemy of wonder, isn't it? When I was a kid, I went for the first time to the sequoias, and I camped there in the redwoods, and it was like a magical forest when you're small, and these trees are huge, for the first time seeing that, I was totally, totally enchanted. Try to get your arms around the big one. We went to the one where you drive under it, too. We've been to that, well, I forget the name of that tree, but getting my arms wrapped around those redwoods. And I was like, uh, I was like Huckleberry Finn. I'm running around the forest. I all of a sudden became like a mountain man, even though I'm just a small kid. So much so that I went to the river banks, and I was catching fish with my bare hands. And uh, o- only to get tacked by the fishing game warden. Oh. Which allegedly or apparently you are not allowed to fish with your hands. It's considered unsportsman. <laughs> and cheeky Ryan, as like 11 year old, said something akin to like, "I'm not fishing. I'm hunting." <laughs> and then he said, "Do you have a hunting license?" <laughs> "No, I don't." And so uh, I uh, I did get I got ticketed for catching fish with my bare hands. But why it was so special to me is that it was all new, and all unfamiliar, and all brand new, where this game warden was like a grizzled old vet. This is a day on the job for him. This was not a magical place that he worked. He was obviously not pleased to be there. He was not particularly kind, or a happy man. And he was not pleased in having to deal with this you know, smart-aleck kid telling him about hunting. The enemy to his wonder is familiarity. This was a known and familiar space, these woods. And so it wasn't amazing to him. This is new to us here this space, but familiar enough to know how to meet in a church. We need to move past that familiarity into wonderment in order to receive and perceive Jesus the way his synagogue, hometown, didn't, and the way so many didn't. To say, this is such a familiar thing. Church, worship, singing, coming together, prayer, and that familiarity that you have with it is the enemy to your standing in wonder and in amazement over what really has happened in your life. And so as we worship, even if it be familiar or unfamiliar songs, I want you to power past them. Recognize it, saying, This is a familiar space to me, Lord, but how do I make this a space of wonderment? Where I can stand there like a little kid wrapping my arms around a sequoia, not needing to know the entirety of how that came to be, but just going, Man, this is awesome. Let me pray for us. childlike in our wonderment and amazement. Help us to see the world the way you do. Help us to see people the way you can see them. Help us, Father, to know where your renewal and these gardens that